0: Let's see what, uh, what Otaka has to say. Which wasn't that long
1: ago. Venezuela was the richest country in Latin America. It had the highest wages It had the best health care and education. It also had, by the standards of the region anyway, a famously stable democracy. Then came an energy crisis and Venezuela wound up with inflation. At times it reached 100% a year. Inflation makes people poor. So in a very short time, the poverty rate in Venezuela doubled. By 1995, 66% of all Venezuelans were impoverished. Getting poor tends to make voters radical, so inevitably Venezuela got radical politics. You know what happened next. Venezuela is now rated one of the most miserable places on planet Earth. A few years ago, citizens in Caracas were reduced to eating zoo animals. There was no food, and for that matter, there was no electricity. So in just half a lifetime, an advanced society had reverted to the Stone Age. The United States is not in danger of becoming Venezuela next week, but we are moving closer to it. Inflation is a big part of the reason. Of all the economic crises a country can face, inflation is the most dangerous. Inflation doesn't just make people poor, it totally destroys their confidence in their leaders, the authorities who issued the now-worthless currency they're using for toilet paper. Inflation is not an act of God, like a drought or hurricane. It's an act of negligence, like drunk driving. It is proof that the people in charge are reckless and stupid. That's why inflation tends to topple governments. Once you get inflation, there's no pretending you've done a good job. You have not done a good job, and everybody knows it. So you can see why the Biden administration is very worried about this. Joe Biden has historically low approval ratings. Voters say inflation is their top concern. Those two facts are directly related. So Biden's most pressing task right now is reassuring Americans that he understands their suffering under inflation and under a rapidly worsening economy, and that he's got a plan to fix it. If he can't convince Americans of that, it may be a long time before we have another Democratic president. Thankfully, Joe Biden has a plan, or at least a new publicist, a silver-tongued wordsmith-slash-policy guru called Corrine Jean-Pierre. It is Corrine Jean-Pierre's job to take this message of economic hope to the American people and save the Biden administration. She started Monday. Here were her first words from the podium.
2: I am obviously acutely aware uh, that my presence at this podium uh, represents a few firsts. Uh, I am a black gay immigrant woman, the first of all three of those to hold this position.
1: So that was a little confusing. It wasn't actually about America, it was about her. But still, we learned that Korean Jean-Pierre is a black lesbian, the first ever in history, she reminded us, to hold this particular job. Listen carefully. That shattering you hear in the background It's a thousand glass ceilings cracking simultaneously into millions of tiny pieces and then being swept by the custodians of tomorrow into the trash bin of bigotry and hate. Soon they'll be trucked to a landfill and buried. It's a new day, America. How do you feel? You still can't afford to have your refrigerator fixed or go to the dentist. On the other hand, Corrine Jean-Pierre has good news for you about herself. Corrine Jean-Pierre has just reached a highly significant personal goal. And understandably, she is brimming with self-esteem. Congratulations, Karine Jean-Pierre. Your promotion is America's promotion. Hope it feels good. You're going to want to hold on to that sensation, the one you're now experiencing, and treasure it in the days ahead like a hand warmer as America becomes poorer than you ever imagined possible. And it is. As of tonight, parents across the country can't find baby formula. Oh, no big deal. Well, it is actually a big deal because as a result of that, several children have just been hospitalized in the state of Tennessee. Fertilizer prices, meanwhile, have hit record highs. That will mean food shortages around the world. Famine in some places, starvation. It'll mean shortages here. Food inflation, Bloomberg reports, will, quote, leave no household unscathed. And then gas prices also just hit an all-time high. They're not going down. Mike Jennings, the CEO at a major refiner, says gas prices will stay high for the foreseeable future. Quote, I don't see any signs of it ending soon or well. And that's true of inflation across every major sector of this economy. Axios reporting tonight that, quote, inflation is pushing prices higher and higher. And some of those costs may never come back down to the levels Americans were accustomed to before the pandemic. More than half the CEOs in this country publicly predict that recession is imminent. That's what they're saying in public. Imagine what they're saying in private. Morgan Stanley says there's a 27% chance we get a recession in the next 12 months. That's up from 5% just two months ago. So that's scary. But the scariest fact of all, we appear to be running out of energy. Congress never passed the Green New Deal, but we somehow got it anyway. And here are the results. According to the Wall Street Journal, quote, from California to Texas to Indiana, electric grid operators are warning that power generating capacity is struggling to keep up with demand. That gap could lead to rolling blackouts during heat waves or other peak periods as soon as this year. In other words, turn on your air conditioning in August and it won't work. and neither will your lights. The Midcontinent Independent System Operator, which oversees the energy grid in the Midwest, says it's preparing to, quote, take emergency measures in advance of capacity issues this summer. In other words, no more electricity. The North American Electric Reliability Corporation, which oversees energy output in the country, released an assessment this year saying the entire Western U.S. is, quote, at risk of energy emergencies due to the limited supply of electricity available for transfer. So this has never happened. It's happening now. Why? Why is this happening? Well, according to the Wall Street Journal, quote, the challenge is that wind and solar farms, which are among the cheapest forms of power generation, don't produce electricity at all times and need large batteries to store their output for later use. Now, that's not only a big problem. It turns out to be an insurmountable problem, given that nearly half of new electricity generation capacity in the U.S. last year, 42%, was from land-based wind farms. Put a lot of eggs in the wind basket. And some states, like California, have pledged to use 100%, quote, renewable energy by twenty twenty forty-five. So maybe we will have scientific innovation by 2045 that make that possible. If we don't, California will have even less power than it does now. You didn't think growing up in this country there would come a time when they couldn't keep the lights on. Now that time is here. That's shocking. But if you're upset about it, we'd like you to pause and return your attention to the fact. And we're going to say this slowly so we can sink in. Our new White House press secretary is a black lesbian. Hooray! The well, White press corps was duly impressed, tamed, in fact, which was the point of telling them that. But our Peter Ducey did have one question. What is the Biden administration doing about our collapsing economy? And how exactly is the plan to increase taxes on American citizens going to help them pay for things? Here's how Corrine Jean-Pierre responded.
3: How does raising taxes on corporations reduce inflation? <clears throat>
2: um. So... Are you talking about a specific tweet?
3: He tweeted, you want to bring down inflation, let's make sure the wealthiest corporations pay their fair share.
2: Look, you know, we have, talked about, um, we have talked about this this past year uh, about um, making sure that the wealthiest among us are paying their fair share.
3: But how does raising taxes on corporations lower the cost of gas, the cost of a used car, the cost of food for everyday Americans?
2: So, look, I think we encourage those who have done very well. Right. Especially those who care about climate change uh, to support a fair ta- tax code that doesn't change. That doesn't charge manufacturers, workers, cops, builders, a higher percentage of their earnings, that the most fortunate people in our nation and not let this, this, that stand in the way of reducing energy costs and fighting this ex- existential problem, if you think about that as an example.
1: Now, you wouldn't have thought it was possible To take talking points that stupid, that barely literate, that childish, and make them even dumber. And yet, that's exactly what she did. Are you still not convinced that Joe Biden knows how to handle inflation? Did that rattle your confidence rather than bolster it? Then, honestly, there's nothing we can do for you at this point. You're beyond reach. In fact, you know what you are, and you may have seen this coming? You're a racist. That's what we call people who continue to ask complicated, long questions about Joe Biden's economic program. They're racists, and getting rid of them is America's greatest problem. Here's MSNBC to remind you.
4: Mitch McConnell won't come close to delivering the condemnation of white supremacy that Joe Biden did today. Because what? Because, because they make up part of the Republican coalition? I mean, what is the explanation for why not?
1: This is always what the right does to appease the white supremacist movement by saying, hey, free speech, don't touch Uh, speech.
5: Extremism and white nationalism, which is not only on the rise in the far dark corners on the Internet, uh, but the rhetoric in a, you know, tamer version, an attenuated version, I say, um, is now pretty mainstream
1: in the Republican Party. (laughs) Did you hear that from the comb over guy? Free speech is white supremacy, says Chuck Todd. It's white supremacy, free speech. Talking out of turn, reading your own script rather than the one that Chuck Todd provides you, is white supremacy. And that means if you're upset about food shortages or blackouts, you're a racist, 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 racist. There you are complaining again about the precipitous decline in your standard of living. That's always the first sign of a racist Oh, you don't like crime? You don't like litter? You don't like inflation? You're against public urination in New York City? You know what you are? You're a bigot, pal. Stop complaining. You and your free speech. Gail King of CBS is a journalist, a talented and highly awarded broadcast journalist, so she knows exactly how racist you are. You're so racist that Gail King's family members won't even go outside anymore. Watch this.
2: I'm so afraid. I have a nephew who lives in the Midwest, 20-something black man, who walks his dog who said, I was never afraid to walk my dog. Now I'm in the Midwest, just walking around, minding my own business, thinking this this could happen at at any time. Yeah, white
1: supremacists just come out and kill them with the First Amendment. That's what happens when you walk your dog in this country. That's how bad it is. Racism against Gail King's family may be the single biggest problem America faces right now. In fact, it is. The problem is definitely not that we're running out of energy to power civilization. That's not a big deal at all. And that's why you probably didn't read about the fact that the Interior Department just announced it is closing millions of acres to domestic energy production. Sorry, gone. Can't have the energy there to exists, but you can't have it. You know what we can do, though? Buy it from Venezuela. Yes, we can. 20 minutes ago, they told you Venezuela was a criminal regime. Now, Venezuela's going to provide the oil, Not us. We can't. That's immoral because climate change is existential. But Venezuela can and the United States, the Biden administration, is doing everything it can to allow the United States to buy Venezuelan oil directly. What does that add up to? Don't think about that. Thinking about it is racist. It's like the First Amendment. It's white supremacy. And if you don't believe it, Karine Jean-Pierre is here to remind you.
2: Donald Trump is running a racist campaign. The grand wizard of the birther movement, which birtherism is inherently racist. By the way, he's a racist and a bigot, which we already knew. If it walks like a racist, talks like a racist, acts like a racist, it is a racist. And we saw all these awful voter suppression laws, which is really racism just across the country. And we have a racist president in the White House who really pushes his racism like a peacock because I'll say this, we knew Donald Trump was a racist. I wanted to ask you, just uh, change the topic for just a quick second about Donald Trump's uh, racist tweets. The systemic racism and how that has affected our country. Donald Trump is the most outwardly racist president that we have seen in generations. This country uh, needs to start talking about uprooting institutional racism. Fox News was racist before coronavirus. They are racist during the coronavirus. Fox News will be racist after the coronavirus.
1: <laughs> you know we need to talk about? Karim Jean-Pierre just told you. Know what, you know we need to have a conversation about? And by conversation, we mean you shut up, I talk. We need to have a conversation about how racist you are, which is very racist. So if you can't keep the lights on or go to the dentist, or if you're one of the very few people, maybe three in the country, has noticed that honey prices have doubled since December, why is that happening? Shut up, racist. Droy Murdoch is a contributing editor to National Review Online. We are delighted to have a, him join us tonight. <laughs> My favorite part was when Kareen Jonquiere, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, I don't want to be racist. Um, Absolutely he said, delighted. Change the subject for a minute.
0: And then, okay, I think I can skip uh, Droy Murdoch's commentary there on what's wrong with this country. But I was looking at the Los Angeles Times today, and they had this thoughtful explanatory article Laguna Woods shooting highlights growing tensions between Taiwan and China. So a Chinese American angry at Taiwanese Americans drove from Las Vegas to Laguna Woods in Southern California and shot up a church and it could have been much much worse if not for the bravery of a doctor who charged the shooter helps subdue him that the doctor paid with his life. But the, the man who's accused of opening fire inside a Taiwanese church, he is believed to have been driven by hatred for the Taiwanese and by the political belief that Taiwan is part of China. And this highlights the increasingly fraught geopolitical situation in the Taiwan Straits. So this, this mass shooting, that gets thoughtful analysis. And the LA Times is letting us know that different groups have different interests. Now, there are other mass shootings that are only condemned as evil, the product of you know crackpot conspiracy theories such as the great replacement uh, the notion that when uh, demographics change uh, power uh, shifts in society and sometimes people feel more comfortable and other people feel less comfortable because different people have different interests different groups have different interests so we get this really thoughtful even handed explaining article on how the Taiwanese and the Chinese have different interests. Well, guess what? Uh, Sometimes there are clashing interests between Jews and Christians and Muslims and blacks and whites and Asians and Mexicans and Taiwanese and, and Chinese, right? Different groups have different interests. So is Taiwan a part of China? Well, the Chinese think so the Taiwanese don't. What is the threat from China? China clearly wants to take back Taiwan. Where does the US fit in? Well, the United States has thrown in with Taiwan because it has strategic interests to limit the rise of China. And so our public policy is one of strategic ambiguity. So the United States has supposedly remained deliberately vague on whether it interfere if China were to attempt to take Taiwan by force. That, that's nonsense. Right? We are explicitly going to battle if the Chinese try to take Taiwan. there really be war in taiwan so i'm just struck by this super even-handed essay explaining how different groups have different interests when it comes to the shooting in laguna woods but other shootings which also exemplify perhaps mental illness perhaps clashing group interests doesn't get that kind of explainer right and court has a column today here are the nutcases who believe in the great replacement So according to the New York Times, it's the notion that Western elites, sometimes manipulated by Jews, want to replace and disempower white Americans. Okay, so we've got Democratic consultant Patrick Reddy in 1998 says, the 1965 Immigration Reform Act has resulted in a wave of immigration from the third world that should shift the American nation in a more liberal direction within a generation. It will go down as the Kennedy family's greatest gift to the Democratic Party. In 2002, we've got these Democrats and demographers, uh, John Judas and Roy Teixeira. They wrote a book, The Emerging Democratic Majority. They argue that demographic changes, mostly by immigration, were putting Democrats on a glide path to an insuperable majority. After Obama's reelection in 2012, one of them crowed in The Atlantic, that 10 years farther down this road, right? Uh, that uh, looks even more sure than ever that uh, Democrats are on a glide path to an insuperable identity. So Obama lost the white vote outright. Democrats have always lost the white vote for president since Lyndon Baines Johnson. But Obama won the election with the minority vote. African Americans 93 to 6, Hispanics 71 to 27, Asians 73 to 26. National Journal's Ron Brownstein began touting the coalition of the ascendant. He gloated that Democrats didn't need blue-collar whites anymore. Obama lost more than three-fifths of non-college whites and whites older than 45. But who cares? He crushed it with minorities at a combined 80%. Adios, Reagan Democrats, he says. Democratic pollster Stanley Greenberg published a book in 2019 titled Rest in Peace GOP explaining the coming death of the Republican Party because our country is hurtling toward a new America that is ever more racially and culturally diverse, more immigrant and foreign-born. And there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. It's just inevitable. It's like the, the tide. Right? On MSNBC, they're constantly sneering about old white men celebrating the browning of America. A group called Battleground Texas boasts about flipping that deep red state to the Democrats simply by getting more Hispanics to vote. Logs are giddily titled The Irrelevant South. The traditional white South is no longer relevant in national politics. MSNBC's Joy Ann Reid tweet she is giddy watching all the bitter old white guys as Ketenji Brown Jackson makes history. And our latest expert is Tim Wise popping up on MSNBC and CNN to psychoanalyze the white racists. So in 2010, he wrote an open letter to the white right that began, for y'all y'all rich folks enjoying that champagne or whatever fancy ass scotch you drink, and for all you a bit lower on the economic scale enjoying your pub's blue... Ribbon or whatever shitty ass beer you favor because your time is limited, real damn limited. Why? It is math. Wait, is it math racist? Moving on. You're on the endangered list. Unlike the bald eagle or some exotic species of muskrat, you are not worth saving. 40 years, maybe fewer. There won't be any more white people around. who Actually, remember, leave it to beaver. Because in 40 years, half the country will be black or brown, and there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing. Senor Tancredo, meaning Tom Tancredo. And then you get more paragraphs mocking white people. Tim Wise ends with, We have to be patient, wait for you to pass into that good night, first politically, and then, well, did you hear it? The sound of your empire dying, your nation as you knew it, ending permanently, because I do, and the sound of its demise is beautiful. So for Tim Wise, the best way to kill that anti-Semitic trope of Jewish elites waging war against whites is to be a Jewish elite waging war against whites. So speaking of theories involving Jewish cabals, the New York Times published, August 4, 2003, on neoconservatives. For the past few weeks, U.S. President George W. Bush has been surrounded by a secretive circle of advisors and public relations experts, giving rise to all kinds of conspiracy theories and debates. It's been said that the group's idol is German-Jewish philosopher Leo Strauss. Hmm. That's uh, Ann Coulter's column today. All right, while I catch my breath, let's listen to the dulcet tones of Amy Wax backed up by the terrific singers Joseph Cotto and Paul Gottfried.
6: The Republican Party is becoming the working class.
0: No, that's not the one. Here we go. It's frightening to me. I mean,
4: one of the things that's happened to me in the past few months when, you know, Penn has ramped up their their campaign against me and their slurs and and name-calling against me uh, is that I have regularly received emails of people in the university reaching out to me, and that has accelerated, interestingly enough, And I'm talking about undergrads, uh, law students, med students, uh, junior professors, postdocs, it could be anybody. Uh, And they will come, they want to know, like, how can they escape the culture war? Short answer, you can't.
2: Uh, Mm -hmm. You
4: may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. Uh, But the second thing they ask me is, what do I read? How do I inform myself about some of the ideas that I hear you promulgating and the ones that, of course, get me in terrible trouble? Uh, Because these are ideas that just are banished from the university. And I give them a list of you know, 10 publications, websites, organizations, Chronicles is one of them, uh, but there are others, You know, all the way from the American Renaissance website mm-hmm. to you know, the National Review. And they haven't heard of 99% of them, Claremont, never heard of Claremont, never read Claremont. Uh, and first things for the ones who are religious mm-hmm. uh, or are religiously inclined. Uh, and it's like a revelation to them. I mean, I get emails from them after our meetings in which they say, wow, you know, I wish I had known about first things. I wish I had known about American greatness. I wish I had known about Chronicles uh, or that sort of thing uh, earlier. And these people are well into their 20s now. Right. And it, it extends, I think, Paul, I told you this, to the most basic uh, understandings of, of history. The example I love to use is my students who study, you know, racism, inequality, disadvantage, you know, all the stuff they teach in sociology and psychology, mm-hmm. those soft
0: majors that they major. OK, let's get a little bit more here from Tucker Carlson. Come on, Tucker. Come on. Give it to us straight, mate. Key Senate race in Pennsylvania. Okay, a kind of chaos
1: go. and ultimately a re- revolutionary type situation. The worse, the better. Boy, that is, that is chilling. Joy Murdoch, thank you so much. Tucker, great to see you. Thank you. You too. Primary elections have concluded in a couple of states across the country. A key Senate race in Pennsylvania, however, remains undecided tonight. What does that mean exactly? Where's it going? Dana Perino, a oh, very reasonable, right. nice person joins us very soon to explain what that means and what's going to happen. Plus, the Biden administration just made a major announcement about the future of the newly created disinformation board, the Ministry of Information. Shut up, racist. <laughs> That's next.
0: Okay, hey, thanks, Tucker. Looking, looking forward to it. Can't wait to get, get the latest there. So I was looking at a tweet just before I started the show from Joseph Cotto. And he says, serious question in this day and age, what is America? And what does it stand for? I surmise that many adamant US patriots will not like the answer. Well, the answer. So America is a country comprised of 50 states. It's the most powerful nation in the world. It's been the richest nation in the world since the 1880s. It's been militarily the most powerful nation in the world since about 1942. It, uh, like all nation states, stands for protecting itself and protecting the prosperity of its citizens. But I do think there are things about American identity that that, that uh, are distinctive. So Americans have always been fairly self-conscious and self-aware that their nation represents something unique in the history of the world. So Alexis de Tocqueville wrote the most famous study of the American Identity He regarded the commitment to human equality as the bedrock of American virtues. So this idea of national character is much disputed among historians, but it is the topic of a terrific teaching company course by Patrick Elite. So it's called on American identity. So David Potter argues that American character was defined by the fact of material abundance. Daniel Borstein emphasizes Americans' inventiveness, adaptability, and pragmatism. So certain characteristics and attitudes do appear among our most famous citizens, especially to outsiders as distinctly American. So yeah, a lack of fatalism compared to any other people of which I'm aware. Americans tend to have less fatalism. Americans tend to be more energetic with solving problems. They seem to have more faith about human equality and democracy, a great belief in the boundless possibilities of economic growth, and a tremendous dedication to making education and literacy available to every citizen. So Americans have high expectations of progress. And uh, Americans tend to be strivers, constantly trying to s- strive to improve themselves and their society. So American history is very much full of workaholics. One characteristic Americans do not exhibit is fatalism. So compared to the English, the French, the Germans, the Australians, uh, Americans not fatalistic. If something's wrong, the American attitude is we will fix it. If something works slowly, we will speed it up. So American history is filled with people restlessly trying to improve their farms, their machines, their society, their culture, their relationships, their entire way of life. I think Americans love self-help more than any other people. Uh, Regular warfare and ingenious military improvisation characterize the expansion of America. Visitors from abroad are usually impressed by Americans' intense pride in their own country. Striking aspect of American nationalism is its self-critical character, particularly among the most highly educated Americans. Uh, Religious innovation, another distinctive aspect of American identity. Uh, The United States leads the world and has for probably 80 years in scientific research and achievement. So American funding, laboratories, official support for the most complex research schemes are unparalleled. I mean, no one comes close to technological and scientific innovation compared to Americans. So every ambitious scientist from the rest of the world seeks a permanent job For a fellowship at one of the major American research centers. And another distinctive aspect of American identity is being the American ability to make practical new devices and put them to profitable use. Another stereotype is that of the shrewd Yankee businessman who knows how to drive a hard bargain. So yeah, I I think there is is something distinctive about Americans. Uh, Particularly when you travel, you, you come back and... Yeah, there there is definitely something something different about this country. It's the optimism, the energy, the uh, veneration of entrepreneurs.
1: Elon Musk seems to have put his purchase of Twitter on hold. What exactly is going on here? Our Trace Gallagher is on that story for us tonight. Hey Trace. Hey, Tucker,
7: also talk about a change of heart. The richest man in the world has said he doesn't think he's ever voted for a Republican, but as the Democratic Party goes farther left, Elon Musk has indicated he's moving right. And today tweeted, quoting here, "...in the past I voted Democrat because they were mostly the kindest party, but they have become the party of division and hate, so I can no longer support them and will vote Republican." Now watch their Dirty Tricks campaign against me unfold. Not a total shock here because earlier this week on the All In podcast, Musk began dropping hints like this. Watch.
8: I mean, this administration, just, just it doesn't seem to get a lot done. Like, And, you know, um, whatever, like the, the Trump administration, leaving Trump aside, I, there, there were a lot of people in the administration who were effective at getting things done.
7: And remember, this all comes as the deal to buy Twitter is at a standstill after the Tesla founder pressed Twitter CEO Paraga Gral to show proof that no more than 5% of its 300 million users are bots or fakes, saying the deal wouldn't move forward until he does. Musk thinks the number of Twitter spam accounts or bots could be at 20%. And while some believe Musk is only angling for a better price, there is now an eye-opening audit by the software company SparkToro that shows who all those phony users might be or who they might follow. Turns out after analyzing location issues, default profile images, and new users, SparkToro says almost 50% of President Biden's 22 million followers are bots, fakes, spam accounts. Something tells me a Musk tweet is about to be
1: composed. Tucker. Amazing. What a story. Trace Gallagher, thanks so much for that. You bet. So we told you about the Biden administration's Ministry of Truth, the Disinformation Bureau. The Washington Post reported today with deep sadness that it's being shut down effectively. Post was very upset by this, and in a piece by Taylor Lorette, who may be the second most ludicrous person in America, she blamed right-wing attacks. Now the most ludicrous person in America is Nina Jankowicz. She was the truth czar. And she's the reason it was shut down. Nina Jankowicz was so embarrassing that even the Biden administration, which has an almost infinite capacity for embarrassment, or really no shame whatsoever. You see the White House Press Secretary? Even they couldn't put up with her. Now, Nina Jankowitz has an obvious response to this. If you think she's absurd, well, you're a sexist. Watch.
7: Women should not be involved in government. They cannot be trusted. The real reason she's angry is because no chads would hit it and stick with it. Those are just two of the thousands of abusive tweets I've received over the past couple of months. Unfortunately, for women in politics, journalism, academia, or basically any time when we express an opinion while female, that is not the exception. It's the norm.
1: (laughs) Oh, I'm sassy and strong! What if people criticize me? I have to put on costumes. <laughs> and I cry because I'm so strong and sassy. We could play her greatest hits for hours. She's an expert on disinformation after all. But if we had to pick our favorite performance by Nina Jankowitz, all of which are about Nina Jankowitz because the well of narcissism is endless, it would have to be this one.
9: it's how you hide a little lie little lie. It's how you hide a little lie lie. It's how you hide
7: a little lie little lie when Rudy Giuliani shared that intel from Ukraine. Or oh, when TikTok influencers say COVID can cause pain. They're laundering disinfo when we really should take note and not support their lies with our wallet, voice or vote. Oh.
1: If that's not your ringtone by the end of tonight's show, you have no sense of humor. So today, our Peter Ducey asked the White House, How could they possibly shut this down? I mean, it's just so great. And they they blamed mischaracterization from outside forces. Watch.
3: So if it's pausing because you think the board was mischaracterized then the disinformation board is being shut down because of disinformation is that what's happening
2: here Look I mean the, the board was put forth for a purpose right to make sure that we really did a t- a, uh, really did address what was happening across the country when it came to disinformation and It's okay it's all, but, but it's, days it's just going it's it's going to pause there's been a mischaracterizations from outside uh, outside forces
1: You know, she's only three days into the job. We're already noticing a tick in our friend Karina Jean-Pierre. So she punctuates the cliches and the completely meaningless chunks of language that spill forth from her mouth with the word right. Right? Right? I think it's an academic tick or an MSNBC thing or something. Anyway, the bottom line is, according to the White House publicist, disinformation sank the disinformations are so great. Only Matt Walsh could fully appreciate this. He's the author and producer of the documentary, What is a Woman? He joins us tonight. Matt Walsh, just savor this. I'm going to let you go.
10: Yeah, I, well, I, I think it's actually great news. It's great news for us, but it's really great news for CNN too, because it, you know the disinformation board... It means that something finally died faster than CNN Plus, so they could take <laughs> some <laughs> some solace in that, I suppose. I think—I'm th- glad that we got that clip of Peter Doocy because there's a, this, this fundamental absurdity that you, that you do have to really savor, which is that they claim that it's supposed disinformation about the disinformation board that shut it down, which is like—I mean, it's like if there's a, a fire, a new fire department that was set up in your town, and then you had a fire at your house, and you called the fire department— and they said, well, screw that. We're closing. We can't come help you. I mean, that's, that's the whole reason that you're here, right, is for this. Uh, is, and the disinformation board is supposed to be there to shut down disinformation. The first piece of disinformation you should be able to shut down and expose is the disinformation about the board itself. But, of course, we know that when they say disinformation, they mean not disinformation, but information that is inconvenient to them. Every time the left talks about misinformation or disinformation, they mean disinformation or rather information that we don't like. And that's that's the advantage of being a relativist, by the way, which is that right. you know if if you don't like a certain truth, then that means that it's no longer true because you don't like it. Which is exactly why these people cannot be in charge of deciding what's true or not because they are relativists when it comes down to it.
1: I I, I gotta say it. I think that sounds sexist. I mean, I, so I guess what you're really saying is women should not be allowed on the internet.
10: Of yeah, I mean, what it comes down to, it, of course, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, and that's that's <laughs> like, this, <laughs> this is this is. By, by the way, also, also note how all we had to do with the disinformation board is just point to it and say, look at this exactly. thing that they're doing. Exactly. And the whole thing collapsed just like yes. that. All we had to do, democracy dies in darkness, right? I mean, all we had to do was point it out and say, look at this thing they're doing. And uh, that, was, that was the end of the disinformation board. Such, that is such a smart and reassuring point. Thank you for saying that. I hadn't even thought of that, but you're
1: absolutely right. Matt Walsh, great to see you. Thank you. So for eight years, we watched Bill de Blasio wander stone through New York City. Now he's gone. You thought you'd never see him again. Oh, but he's back doing the only thing he's qualified to do, which is politics. We'll tell you what he's doing next.
0: And uh, the Republicans going to have any hope in the midterms where they got to go up against a White House spokeswoman as eloquent, as as convincing, as powerful as uh, Karina Jean-Pierre. Or or is she, is she the worst White House spokesperson ever? I mean, she's really really bad. So what do you do if you've uh, if you've lost your Instagram account? Is there anything you can do to get I it question. back? What's the
10: sluttiest thing you've ever done?
11: Oh, probably pretty recently. So I've gotten my Instagram taken down like three or four times. Mm. And the first time that I got my Instagram down – or that I got it shut down, um, I – one of my friends, he works at Instagram. He's a guy friend. And so I started sleeping with him to have him get my Instagram back. And, that's fair. Yeah. And he did, which was really nice of him. <laughs> and then you stopped sleeping oh. with and, him uh, and he yeah, took it away? <laughs> yeah. And then I, I, I fucked up my bag. I did because I, uh, I fucked it up with him and did some toxic shit, shit that Jade taught me. I was just fuck-girling around with her. So he taught me how, like, what the review process is like, basically, when you get your Instagram account shut down yeah. and, like, which departments work on which things. Mm-hmm. So basically, he told me that the integrity department is the one that's in, up for reviews, right? Okay. So I went on his LinkedIn and I searched up um, all of his Instagram connections. And then I searched up the ones in the integrity department and then I messaged them on LinkedIn to like see to get my account back. But obviously, like they get all those like so many emails a day. Oh. So I stalked them on Instagram and then I contacted them on Instagram through my um, like my backup, but still slutty account.
10: Uh-huh. And
11: I managed to find a couple not from that department, but like still people that worked at Instagram. In LA, and I <laughs>
10: everybody tag Mark Zuckerberg in the comments because this is important information. Yo, yeah, Fucking to tag Wall, the Wall Street Journal, Taylor <laughs> Lorenz. We need an article about this. Oh man, this is insane. Uh, I met up,
11: so I found a couple to meet up with, and uh, the Asian community is like pretty small in LA. Mm-hmm. So like. Uh, They kind of knew about my podcast, and some of them were already following my podcast, so all I had to do was basically reach out to them as, like, Kitty Lixo. And we met up, and, like, I fucked a couple of them, and I was able to get my account back, like, two, three times. Because in order to get it back, if they deny you the first time, basically what a person has to do is keep trying, keep putting in reviews, and every time they put in another review, it gets sent to a different person. So as long as someone keeps trying for you in that department, you will eventually get your account back. So all you have to do is, like, have someone really, really like you and like rally for you, and you'll get your account back.
3: Girl power.
0: Wow. So what can you do to get someone to really, really like you? I mean, I'd just like to get back thousands of dollars that YouTube stole from me that was given to me via Super Chats, and then when YouTube decided to demonetize my Luke is Back YouTube channel, they kept uh, thousands of those dollars. So I'm just curious. Who do I have to reach out to? And, I mean, God forbid, I, I, I can't... I can't sacrifice my, my purity my, my sexual sobriety, but I mean wh- what does a man have to do to get his money back from from YouTube all right just asking for a friend all right Steve Saylor talks about the latest uh, mass shootings, so is it mainly you know lone dog you know young white men espousing white supremacy? who are doing most of the the mass shooting. Well, not really. So, apparently, New York Times analysis of 2015 incidents with four or more gunshot victims, three quarters of the victims and assailants whose race could be identified were black. Some experts suggest that that helps explain why the drumbeat of dead and wounded does not inspire more outrage. And now, There are different definitions of a mass shooting. So Mother Jones magazine has this tendentious, we know it when we see it, list of 127 mass shootings that best fit in with their media stereotypes. So they exclude off-narrative incidents, such as robberies gone wrong, gang dust-ups, domestic murder, suicide, shootings in which nobody saw nothing because snitches get stitches. All right, so the St. Valentine's Day massacre that Al Capone ordered in 1929 that rubbed out seven Irish mobsters would not make the Mother Jones list because it was gang-related. But the list manages to catch all the mass shootings that New York Times subscribers are trained to recall. Columbine, Aurora, Dark Knight Rises, Sandy Hook, in Santa Barbara, Roof, the Gay Pulse Nightclub, Las Vegas, Parkland, the El Paso, Walmart, and so on. So Mother Jones's list of favorite Columbine-style killing shootings is no longer on white perps, just uh, 59% of the 127 most famous shooters since 1982 being white. But as the country has diversified, the non-Hispanic white share in the Mother Jones count drops from 67% in 1982 to 2012 to 50% over the past nine years. So according to the Radford University database of serial killers, 69% of serial killers were white in the 1960s, and only 31% were white by 2010 to 2015. So the most commonly cited profile of a serial killer in the US being a white male in his mid to late 20s is not accurate. Now, almost all mass shootings are done with handguns. Well, rifles and shotguns are used about half the time in mass killings, according to Mother Jones. But uh, the the black mass shootings tend to be kind of stupid and dull, more about social media beefs than manifestos. Now now, Dorner. so Christopher Dorner, the guy who shot, you know, shot the after the police and then went went uh, hiding out, and was eventually tracked down and died in a gun, you know, blaze of gunfire. He released a manifesto talking about his favorite movie stars and his favorite uh, TV pundits and how he was sad that he wouldn't get to see sequels of his favorite movies. Now, we don't hear very much about the spectacular July 7, 2016, Dallas Black Lives Matter police massacre helped get Donald Trump elected president. That's been memory hauled for subverting the narrative. So during a Black Lives Matter, mostly peaceful protest, just hours after President Obama interrupted his European speech to make a TV diatribe denouncing police shootings of two black men, we get this guy, Micah Xavier Johnson, who murdered five policemen in Dallas, wounded nine others, and two civilians. But uh, he doesn't get much attention. So, New York Times has mentioned his name three times in this decade versus Dylan Roof 36 times. Washington Post has run eight Dylan Roof articles, zero about Micah Johnson. Fox News.com records 16 references to Dylan Roof, none to Micah Johnson. So that uh, Johnson shot 14 cops the night that Obama, Hillary, and the Prestige Press were explaining how angry blacks should feel over police shootings is too embarrassing to be remembered, and therefore, it is not. More from Amy Wax.
4: You're in. Some of them are these bullshit made-up majors. I can't even tell, you know, global this, and global that. I don't know. You know. Global ecological environmental internationalism. They, they, those are the, the majors they, they have.
12: The victimology 300.
4: Yeah. Them like, have you ever heard of Daniel Patrick Moynihan and the Moynihan Report? They're obsessed with blacks, of course, and you know, racism and and injustice against blacks, structural racism, systemic racism, and all of that. And of course, they've never heard of it. They don't know who he is. They don't know what the Moynihan Report is. They don't know what it's about. They don't know it was about the black family. They don't know <laughs> the politics of it. You know, the events surrounding it, uh, the the points that Moynihan made, the famous passages, the data. They don't know the percentage of black children born out of wedlock. They they absolutely are ignorant of all that stuff. Now I don't know what they study in these courses. Um, the syll—I've seen some of the syllabi. They're—they're they're so utterly one-sided and tendentious. It's shocking. Uh, but they are in the dark. They are totally in the dark. And I consider that, frankly, once again, educational malpractice. That is educational malpractice is being practiced in our great universities. That—that that is what I would say.
3: Uh, Paul, anything to bring up here?
12: No, I, I mean, all, all I can do is uh, sort of join the course, agree with Amy. Uh, although fortunately, I'm exposed to a lot less of this than she is, since I'm now retired and uh, happily so. You know, uh, I only have my dogs and my wife to do. To <laughs> I do not have to. Uh, <laughs> I have to deal with uh, with academics. Um, but the, the the thing that that I find so remarkable about the, the current political correctness uh, is, that at least in theory. These people hate themselves. You know, I am white. I am this. You know, I can understand the communists or Nazis, like, you know, I hate Jews. I hate the bourgeoisie, whatever it is. Because it was some other group you were hating. But you didn't hate yourself. You you may have been destructive. Now these people are self-destructive. The only way it makes any sense to me, and I discussed this with Amy and Roger a few weeks ago, um, is if we assume that the people who are saying these things don't really hate themselves, they hate other white people you know, and they are uh, uh, inciting blacks and other minorities to go after the white people who they hate, Uh, and they just sort of mouth these slogans. I think this is true at some level, although I think Amy's also made the argument that many of these people actually believe this junk that they're telling me, and that that I find really scary, by the way, that, you know, these people must be incredible masochists to accept uh, any of these weird views.
0: And uh, Mango Jim from Australia says, Luke, do you feel intimidated by virtue of being white and living in L.A.? No, I don't, even though I think residents of L.A. are and about 25% non-Hispanic white. But uh, like most people in LA, I live in in a particular silo. So my silo is Orthodox Judaism, which is uh, overwhelmingly white. I also live in and around Beverly Hills, West LA, which is quite different uh, composition than say South LA. All right, uh, what does Keith Woods have to say? He's still on YouTube. And he says at the bottom of his video, Video intended for educational purposes only. I do not necessarily endorse any of the views that he is expressing True, himself. Uh,
13: the sort of virile approach, uh, returning to a Bronze Age mindset. They, you know, they don't have the typical sort of a Christian moralistic approach to things. They tend to be more Nietzschean, um, and yeah, a similar group would be the sort of Spencerites. I'm not sure what else to call them. People that are influenced by Spencer who also have quite a Nietzschean worldview on things. Uh, they're also more explicitly anti-Christian. Um, these people vary a lot. I mean, it's, it's hard to sort of categorise these people. You can categorise different groups. You know, there's there's these people that are sort of pro-European Union and NATO and uh, see those as, uh, you know, see defending the West as the same thing as, as defending sort of the, the national interests of the people in the West uh, in terms of, you know, the institutions that represent the West now, like NATO, um, and want to kind of um, rejig those institutions somehow to be uh, illiberal or kind of the opposite of what they are now. People like Apollonians that want to like... Uh, invent their own, uh, atheistic religion. Um, and you also, I mean, I think just the the kind of fame or infamy of Spencer means that there's always people that are sort of acting as, as coffee cats for him. So it's probably quite enjoyable for them if they're anonymous online to do those sort of controversial takes. Um, you know, can't be battling the most popular. You know, it's weird, I found a lot of them are Europeans or Scandinavian, but the, their whole worldview seems to be focused on sort of opposition to the American right wing and the trend of conservatism generally. Sometimes it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of positive content there. It is just kind of uh, this kind of Nietzschean um, deconstruction and negation of everything uh, and, you know, kind of um, esoteric hot takes that end up uh, sort of agreeing with the left. I think people just sort of uh, enjoy the, the hot take aspect of that, uh, which, again, is kind of built around now, I think- mimicry, mimicry of, of one personality. But uh, the people mimicking it often don't have the same level of, of understanding or intelligence so it almost comes off like a parody so yeah that would be another faction the kind of Nietzschean pan-Europeans um uh, that are very hostile to conservatism to the right generally and take this more sort of a futurist looking approach uh, you would also have the kind of uh pagang pagans um people that trace the root of the problems of the modern world christianity and want to return to indigenous european religion spirituality these also vary because you know to some people being a pagan just means uh, like worship in the natural order or something and then you have some pagans uh, like said, Mike from Imperium Press, where it's about uh, ancestor worship, about the cult of the family. Uh, you have pagans who actually believe in the pantheon uh, of gods who are Odinists or who uh, worship the Greek gods, and then you have people who think that the gods are sort of uh, archetypal or metaphorical or something, so there's quite a bit of variation there. You know, Mike from Imperium Press, for example, would be very hostile to uh, Platonism and to metaphysics as part of this pagan worldview, whereas someone like Survive the Jive, who's one of the most influential of, of, of these people, um, I believe embraces paganism, and you have a uh, i call modern platonist who who promotes uh, this stuff as well so you can see even within that there's quite a lot of variation i do think that's a faction that's grown uh, recently and i think part of the reason for that is probably because they're making it more sort of intellectually coherent where it isn't just sort of as it often has been on the internet like just a kind of um sort of nietzschean anti-christianity that doesn't really have any metaphysical basis of itself Uh, i think that's changed with some people that have sort of come on the scene and made it more coherent so that's probably also a faction that we will see growth um i think that kind of covers everything i mean the, the final faction would just be the sort of um Telegram NS people, Telegram nationalists that are kind of these-
0: okay. Thank you, thank you, Keith Woods, for your enlightenment. Just education only. Understand you're not endorsing anyone. That that's a great relief. So let's get a little bit from Tucker Carlson here on the Senate race in Pennsylvania. The Republican candidates
1: nomination. in yesterday's. Primary for the Republican Senate nomination in the state of Pennsylvania. Two of them tonight are deadlocked, separated by looks like a little over a thousand votes. Vote counting continues. Dave McCormick is one. Dr. Oz is the other. Again, in a dead heat. What does this mean exactly? What's going to happen? Dana Prino is the person that we go to for oh, the answers God. to these no, questions. No, She's co-anchor no, for America's no, Newsroom and host of the no, Five. Of course, what happens here tonight, hey, Dana?
0: No, 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 no. No, uh, we're not going to Dana Perino. We're not going to listen to Dana Perino. I mean, I- I'm willing to go many places. I mean, I'll even give Luke Smith one more try. I mean, I thought he was absolutely pathetic yesterday, but let's see if he's any better in this video. Now, I think
6: everyone knows that uh, stupid people are easier to manipulate than others. But I think what a lot of times people don't think about is that at periods in your I'm not sure that's true.
0: My experience with stupid people is that they're highly suspicious because they have enough life experience that everyone around them is smarter than they are. And so my experience is that stupid people tend to be much more suspicious, much more skeptical, and therefore much more difficult to manipulate than, than people of average and above average intelligence. So Luke Smith is really bad. I mean, this guy is like the epitome of the shallow thinker who has some vastly exaggerated sense of his own wisdom. Your life or
6: at periods in your mood, when you are stupider, you are easier to manipulate. Okay, it's a very simple
0: principle. Now, one thing that I see all the time. You know what type of people are easy to manipulate? The narcissist, all right? I suspect that Luke Smith would probably be pretty easy to manipulate. You just tell him how great he is and uh, then, then you'll be able to manipulate him. So generally speaking, we did not evolve to be stupid we did not evolve to be manipulable so easily otherwise we wouldn't still be here right that there are still 8 billion human beings on the planet right now that we've been developing over hundreds of thousands of years and we're still here and we're dominating the globe that that to me indicates we did not evolve to be stupid and gullible contrary to what luke smith is asserting
6: i'm um, now that is very annoying and in fact many people basically make a career of this they make a career of getting mad at things especially political things right
0: that's because if you want to make a career of this you have to develop an audience and you have to connect with people and the easiest way to connect with people is to arouse anger and arouse hatred right angry social media posts or social media commentary right commentary that, that elicits th- those kind of visceral reactions, it's much more likely to go viral and it's much more likely to connect with people. So they spend all day, all their free time on the internet and they just like- Wait, wait, you just said they're making a career of it. So yeah, guess what? People in careers work all day at their careers, right? He's criticizing people making a career of something and then working at it. Well, that's how it. that's how it goes, mate. You want to make a career at something? You have to work at it. In fact, if you wanna make a career, you have to work all day at it. And sometimes even into the night, right? In in a, something where there's a ton of competition and no barriers to entry, like uh being a pundit and uh giving your opinions on, on social media, you're gonna make a career of it? Yeah, you're gonna to have to work all day at it. You wanna make a career being a lawyer, Luke Smith, you're gonna to have to work all day at it. You wanna make a career out of being a dentist or a pastor? You can have to work all day at it. You want to make a career out being a general contractor or a subcontractor? You can have to work all day at it. What amazing insights this guy has! I'm getting mad at things. Oh, look at all these things that are wrong in the world. Well, guess what? Guess what? Many of the really angry pundits who make a career out of punditry—they're not actually that mad in real life, or they'd blow a gasket. It's a performance. It is an act just like professional athletes. They're not so hyped up for, for competition when they're not playing a game that matters. So I, I don't think he realizes the, what, what performance is. I don't think he understands that punditry is a performance. He has no idea that people act and that their persona that they put forward on social media, is very often different from the persona that they put forward in other aspects of their life. Oh, it's so terrible.
6: I'm getting so angry, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, Now, in, um, you know, there's a term in politics, right? Or I guess in propaganda, right, called agit prop. Okay, that's agitation propaganda. It's propaganda that's put out there basically to make you angry. Um, Now, the thing is, when you are angry, you are stupider, you know, in a very real sense. When you're governed by a passion, you...
0: Wait, you're talking about people. You're criticizing people who have managed to make a living out of punditry, right? That's what you're talking about, using your own words. Just in case you actually mean what you're saying, in case this isn't just some phony performance where you're just blowing smoke, right? You started this video talking about people who make a career out of punditry, and that is exceedingly hard to do. You're talking specifically about people who make a career out of punditry on Twitter. Did you realize how difficult that is? And yet you are so smugly assured that you are superior to them, that you are so much wiser and smarter than them. right. The people you're criticizing are doing something that a million other people would love to do and can't pull off. And yet you think that that you're so much smarter and wiser than people who do something that only one in a million people get to pull off.
6: Are by definition, not thinking through what you're doing. You're at a lower level of cognition.
0: Yeah, lower level, not thinking through what they're doing. Yet somehow they're able to pull off what a million other people would love to pull off. Right? They're making a career out of punditry on Twitter. And let's just say you don't actually understand the words you're saying you meant that people who make a career out of punditry in general. All right, there are 500,000 to a million people who would love to make a career out of punditry for everyone who actually does. So I suspect that those who pull off this very rare accomplishment, they're not nearly as stupid and lowly as Luke Smith believes
6: than you are usually okay so if you want to make someone stupid and therefore easier to manipulate one very good thing to do is to make them angry if you are some kind of social
0: this guy's a total waste like who's the one who keeps bones mode 99 all right this is not impressive on your part that you're promoting this guy it's not impressive on your part that you keep wanting me to play excerpts from other streams that i've already played frequently on multiple occasions on, on this stream but do do keep the suggestions coming. Like I appreciate the suggestions. And I'm also challenging you on your suggestions. What I'm saying is it's really a message of love, bro. I'm saying you can do better. Right? I believe in you. Right. I want you to unlock the giant within. I believe in your potential. I think you can do better. So I'm not gonna patronize you and just say, Oh, you're doing a fantastic job. You know, what amazing links. No, I'm saying you can do better. And Luke Smith, I think I can very happily go the rest of my life without ever listening to him again. So the Washington Post says racist violence against Asians is out of control. Now I suspect I suspect statistics would reveal that as Asians are an above average IQ, that they probably suffer. as as victims of crime at a lower rate than average, and probably a lower rate than the other major racial groups, because they have above average income and above average savings, and above average family solidarity, I would expect that uh, racist violence against Asians is considerably below the violence experienced by every other major racial group in America. Here's the Washington Post. Dallas salon shooter had delusions around Asian people. So who's this guy, Jeremy Smith, who had these delusions about Asian people? All right, we've got this Dallas crime story that's given priority in a national newspaper. We learned the shooter's dressed all in black, and we learned that Donald Trump referred to the Chinese virus. So it sounds like someone presumably white just hates the Taiwanese man, the the precise race of these anti racist Asians, anti Asian racists is just of no interest. By contrast, the Dallas affiliate of NBC News puts a different emphasis in its reporting. A Black man whose girlfriend says he suffered from delusions about Asian Americans is in custody accused of opening fire inside hair world salon. So much of the anti-Asian violence is by a protected group that the mainstream media does not want to name. And we've got an article here by Jared Taylor who claims that there will be more patent Gendrons. Why on earth would Jared say such a horrible thing? What could have prevented these rampages like those of Brendan Tarrant or Mr. Gendrons? How about no more repression, censorship, and demonization? That is what caused them. Anyone who wants to outlaw any talk of the Great Replacement should consider this. There is now sustained outrage over a leaked Supreme Court decision on abortion. What if all those angry people were treated like fools, treated like lunatics, banished from newspaper columns, kept off radio and TV, blocked on social media? Might they lose faith in the political process? Would there be more or less political violence? Censorship makes future killers inevitable. Let's instead imagine a political environment of open discussion about the demographic future. One in which it is not considered hate to ask how many people should our country have? Do we need more immigrants? Do people of certain religions or races assimilate better than others into America? Why do people of different races build different societies? Is diversity a strength or a weakness? Which types of diversity are strengths? Which types of diversity cause social weakness? Is it wrong for different groups to prefer to live and marry and work with other members of their group? Should a majority group not be thrilled at the possibility of becoming a minority in the country that they created. Perhaps we don't need to force more diversity on people who never asked for it. But perhaps we should just allow people to build separate communities if that is what they want. For this, Jared Taylor's caught a hater. Twitter closed his account. Amazon banned his books. His organization lost its Facebook account. Hotels would not rent meeting rooms to me. Printers refused my business. Payment processes have cut me off. Other distant groups harassed and silenced. In exactly the same way, any society that crushes opposing viewpoints is treating dissent as a crime. The entire West is rushing toward tyranny. So Jared argues terrorists kill when they believe every nonviolent alternative is being closed off. They reject politics because they think the system is rigged. Being silenced does not mean abandoning deeply held convictions. It means acting outside of politics. So millions of people in the West who are revolted by Brendan Tarrant's actions nevertheless sympathize with his stated goal to ensure the survival of his people. They trust in the democratic process to give them a voice in determining policy. But people can lose faith in democracy when their sincere, beliefs are dismissed as hate, when their views are censored when they're forced out of politics and public discourse. Ideas shared by many people do not disappear just because they are driven underground. They reappear in unexpected and sickening ways. Brendan Tarrant committed a horrible act of mass murder. Anyone who sincerely wants to prevent such murders should remember this. When people have a voice, they speak. When they don't have a voice, they kill.
4: Yeah, it's a. I think the roots of this go way back, and I don't know as much about, uh, you know, political theory and philosophy and, you know, the confluence of Marxism and, mm-hmm. you know, a wasp ideology and self-criticism self, uh, and self-flagellation, as, mm-hmm. as I'm sure you do, Paul, and, and many people do. But I think it has deep roots with a, a very strong infusion of influence from Christianity, mm-hmm. uh, from millenarian points right. of view. Uh, it's it's the product of a guilt culture, right, which has mm-hmm. in some ways served us well, but as with anything, if taken too far, can become incredibly self-destructive. And I think, you know, this runaway racial guilt that we're seeing in our society is an example of mm-hmm. that A trend, which can have some, many positive, uh, many positive overflows or outcomes or ramifications uh, just turning on itself almost, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, it's something I don't relate to at all. Well, I'm Jewish. There are plenty of Jews who think that way, right? They're, they're the leader. They're the vanguard. Uh, <laughs> racial guilt. So my being Jewish it has nothing to do with it. Uh, but it's it's a color I really don't see at all. I've never had one iota of racial guilt, which is different from saying, "Well, I haven't recognized the uh, harms that have been done to Black people in our past," because I totally do, and I you know am interested in the history of slavery. I'm interested in learning about discrimination. but they have those PBS, you know, sort of blackity black obsessional documentaries. I watch watch them uh, holding onto my wallet. But I I do learn about these things. And I think it is important to learn about them um, and keep them in mind, you know, uh, that how things can go very wrong. But I certainly don't think that in the present, we're living in a country like that. I think, you know, one of the wonderful positive aspects of post-Enlightenment Western Civ is that we do have the capacity for self-correction, self-criticism and reform. And we have Exercise that capacity, I think, uh, to great effect. But this self-hating thing is very interesting. That my uh, someone sent me this wonderful Tucker Carlson excerpt, uh, where he interviewed <coughs> this woman um, from Sweden. Her name is—I um, mean, I hope I get this right—Eva Blardingerbroek. She's Dutch, probably, mm-hmm. but she talks about the unrest in Sweden and you know the havoc that is being wreaked by the Muslim mass migration there. Mm-hmm. She says she blames liberal elites for the unrest, but she's quite clear. It's a great segment. Right. Uh, that these migrants are engaged in a project of destroying the social fabric and mm-hmm. order and solidarity of Swedish society. They're very resentful. They're very angry. They're very hostile. But they're egged on by what she calls liberal left wing elites. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, in a way, she says, you know, let's be careful not to totally scapegoat these people, although I have no problem with scapegoating when it's merited. Um, and I, I think these people are human beings, so they are blamed for their actions. But she says they are just taking a cue from the people who are already mm-hmm. there. In the upper middle classes, the woke types, the you know hyper self-critical guilty types, just as we have them in this country, and you know minorities, blacks, America-hating immigrants, you know the America-hating immigrant elite that I got into trouble for talking about on Tucker myself, uh, are taking their cue from those people because they know it's hip and cool to be super hostile to.
0: Okay, so Amy Wax is complaining about how she got in trouble for talking about basic facts of life. Amy Wax, you got in trouble because you said things in an unnecessarily incendiary fashion without providing evidence for the most incendiary things you were saying. So you could have taken the trouble to phrase what you wanted to say in a method that a white audience could hear you. But no, you took the lazy way out. You chose to be incendiary. You did not provide data examples, uh backup for your most incendiary allegations. And you understandably got got pushback. All right. You want to say incendiary things because you're dedicated to telling the truth, then then uh maybe slow your role a little bit. Think about how your words will be heard. Think about how you can phrase things so that the widest audience possible can hear what you're saying and be open to to thinking about what you're saying, and provide data, provide evidence, provide examples, substantiate what you're saying, but that takes effort, right? It doesn't take any effort to just off the cuff, say incendiary things about whole races of people, just go off on Southeast Asians as Amy Wax has done, Uh, go off on other groups without providing substantiation at examples, Right, yeah, you're going to get blowback when you're that lazy and you deserve it because you said some stupid horrible things when you could have said exactly what you wanted to say in a socially acceptable and socially presentable way if you'd cared to be precise with your words and if you'd cared to provide evidence for for what you're saying. So I no longer have as much sympathy for Amy Wax given the increasing trend towards callousness in in her public pronouncements and though i do notice this is an entirely different amy wax on the Cotto gottfried podcast it's as though and i'm not saying she did but it's as though she listened to my criticism of her appearance on tucker carlson and it's as though she took everything i said about her poor performance on tucker carlson as though she actually took it to heart and learned from it and adapted and uh, grew and became a a better person and a better presenter of her ideas i'm not saying she listened to me but the amy wax on this connor godfrey podcast episode very different from the uh, occasionally unnecessarily incendiary amy wax on uh, tucker carlson and uh, and other times when amy wax uh, in the last six months has just come out of the blue with unnecessarily incendiary comments i mean take a page from the 40 Handbook, man. I I say things to, to make them as, as socially respectable and presentable and as possible so that the widest possible audience, like right now I'm speaking to nineteen very impressive members of the Western elite. All right. And and once once this video is done ricocheting across the Western world, probably one hundred of our brightest minds will will have have benefited from it and have experienced, you know, life-transforming insights. People on the left and the right, they're red and yellow, black and white, Christians, Muslims, Jews, secular, atheists, homosexuals, right? This is a place of remarkable, radical love and inclusion. And so I, I always try to keep this a, a hug box. All right, Glenn Medley's got some great comments. <laughs> You girls don't need anger, just provocation. Punditry is like making love out of nothing at all. How does it feel to worship your God, Trump? I wouldn't know. Red Eyes TV claims that there is human trafficking and a casting couch in the distant right. Well, guess what? There's quote-unquote human trafficking and a casting couch in a, everywhere that uh, men with power or influence or status gather. Right, The whole reason that men work hard and strive for status and prestige is in large part to get access to women. Maybe Amy Wax is at that point in her career where she doesn't give a damn. Commudgeons of distinction have their place, and she is absolutely a woman of substance and distinction. So maybe that's what's going on. Right, this is this is a safe silo. this is an urban silo. How much did poor Godfrey 's treatment in academia affect his politics? I think it probably infuriated him and gave him a ton of energy and probably made him more outspoken and uh you know more willing to to throw down and uh perhaps even nudge him a little bit more you know away from respectability. It's like once he saw, ah, I'm not going to be respectable, I-, I might as well just let it all hang out.
4: Our country at present, that's what upper middle class <laughs> people do. That's what they learn in college. If you want to join the upper middle class, that's the stance and the posture that you need to adopt to be openly patriotic, grateful, appreciative, and say, you know, I left the hellhole of my native country to you know, take refuge in your country, which is so much better in every way. And thank you. That's associated with being a lower-middle-class novel drag or upper-middle-class people so, talk uh, that way now. They used to. So it's just, in the end, it's permission and fashion. You know, people are going to take advantage of permission to to steal and pillage and loot and riot. Uh, <laughs> and some segment of the population is going to do that. Uh, but that permission...
0: Okay, Amy Wax doing a much better better, much more impressive job on this latest cutout, Gottfried. So, um, from a few weeks ago. human
14: trafficking in mm-hmm. the uh, di- dissident rights, which, yeah. uh, we will clarify, is not dissident rights. A few people sent this to me, never heard of it. Um, uh, returned centrist Lauren Southern claims that there's human trafficking in the dissident rights, and uh, Ashton Birdie, uh, who also used to kind of frequent some grifter rights uh, circles, says that there's a right-wing casting couch that they were essentially also trying to brainwash her and... Who it's is that nuts. of them?
8: Is she the, the uh, she's not in, in this
14: this shot right here, oh, okay. but okay. she'll gotcha. come up. So we'll just right. play a little bit of it and then just uh, comment as we go, shall we?
5: And now I'm going wild on Twitter, and I know I'm going to wake oh, no. up and look at my Twitter account and be like, Drink oh Drinking no. wine. Well, yeah, <laughs> you, you just
9: said more. you're going to do an expose on the Dismant oh, Right call. I'm, <laughs> I'm interested. In hearing <laughs> well, about I guess
5: I've got to do that now. Should be fun. Dude, I there is so I got to be real. There's so much I haven't said. Like, I got heaps Why and not? piles of things I haven't said. I don't Just... You know, I don't like drama, but But there's so many. You got to like speak up. This is the drama cast. Yeah, I don't like drama, but uh, it's at the point where okay, I saw I watched this thing. What is it called? Kino Casino. Did you know? Oh watch? my gosh, Wait. At the key- oh casino where everyone's
14: on keto? I'm listening. Well, I heard it's, about was cum stain sofas. That's all i might So it's take like away this, from this it was like this This
5: Andy Worski guy, Jaden McNeil, and then this other dude. Well, you that was pretty,
8: you, pretty She did coke with him, right? So she's pretending she doesn't know him now or something? All right. All right. Whatever, girl. <laughs> and they
5: were talking about how <laughs> wait, all that? these young men are being brought into this movement where they're told to hate women and kind of being blackmailed to dogs.
8: Okay. Well, okay, wait, 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 okay. I don't want to pause too much here, but this movement.
14: Okay. I just want to say she, she said she's going to do a tell all on the dissident right. Now, Lauren yeah. Southern, Newsflash, was never a Part of the dissident right. She worked for Ezra, Ezra Levant, who was a Jew. A couple homosexuals who made videos for her. Uh, that's yeah, not Laura being a dissident not, right. She all st- red Jewish. eyes people. know
8: So it's a, it's a gay op misappropriation of the terminology <laughs> uh,
14: when it comes to the migrant invasion that was happening. I did a whole documentary on that, of
8: course. Uh, but yeah, so she's misrepresenting this, and then also it's, it, that's a later thing of different offshoots of different Come groups. On, right. Anyway, Let's so, get so back to Laura hard hitting.
14: Something. So uh, is that who she's calling the dissident right? <clears> because. That's
8: the groypers were oh, kind of man. Uh, uh hating you women it? or whatever yeah. or whatever yeah anyway let's uh, keep going
12: they
5: leave and it's ruining their lives and it actually like looked like i was really happy that people were exposing that because there are so many young men getting invited into the dissident right having their freaking lives destroyed never being able to get a successful relationship with a woman never getting married never doing the things
8: again that yes the Groper america first if you listen to jaden mcneil and uh, simon right who was the vo- who spoke out against nick yes that but don't apply to everyone else yes. what are you
5: doing fine and I, like,
0: to do because they're being told to hate women and like hate being normal and just cry right, because unless someone was telling the, them this on the internet it would never occur to them to have negative feelings about the opposite sex
5: Constantly shitpost post online, and I, I really appreciated like the guys that were calling that out and saying this is actually really unhealthy. And there's a lot of like young, you know, teenage men, early twenties men being taken advantage of for their money and their like hearts, and they truly believe they're saving the world. And I really appreciated people calling that out and potentially saving like lives and futures with that. And maybe maybe I should have talked mm-hmm. about a lot of the stuff that I went through earlier, and I, I kind of regret that. But there's a lot of cult like dynamics in the dissident right. yeah, Like
2: right. She was hammered mm-hmm. for. Uh,
0: Okay, whatever you went through earlier, you probably played a significant role in it. We invite treatment from people. It doesn't just happen to us that just doesn't fall out of the well. about the
14: Trump train she was a part of that that's a cult
5: yeah like I got lied about so much be-
8: yep. literally literally not even because for no reason whatsoever there was like a lot was was of smoke anyone. Yeah. I was like, and then one day for from-
5: <laughs> you know what you guys keep doing your weird like Epstein shit and I'm gonna leave Epstein? and I don't want anything to do with you people I'm not even gonna say anything and
9: doing your weird me to destroy Epstein shit I-, <clears throat> I think
8: she, she just said Epstein said-
5: right you too much Lauren I'm
9: so glad you're saying this because every time I talk about how there was a right wing casting couch and how so many girls were assaulted how so many girls were groomed and abused and people like me
0: who lost their entire family were taken Okay, so Ashton is not the most stable like the e-girls in generally don't tend to be the most mentally stable and so when you combine mentally unstable with you know, above average looks and you're playing around in a sphere of life that's dominated by men if the sphere is dominated by heterosexual men, they're going to try to have sex with you now, if it's a community that that frowns on bad behavior and stigmatizes people and punishes them for bad behavior, then, then that can keep that sort of behavior to a minimum. But if you're in a community that the distant right, which tends not to have a lot of moral scruples, then... Uh, you're you're on your own
9: taking advantage of because we'll be your new and Lauren. Here's the like, Lauren can vouch for
8: me because she witnessed what. You want to pause here. What, what is she talking we're, about? The casting uh, the
9: right wing casting cat Like you make
14: videos on YouTube. No one is saying you must. F- Sleeping with a couple guys who were writing her scripts or something. If we can trust Milo, because Milo's crazy too, you know. Yeah, but, um, bed, but, uh, And remember, uh, yeah. Lauren used to do cosplay. Cosplay, is that what it's called? Cos-
8: furries, <laughs> right? Furries.
14: Furries, yeah. and then became a trad. And then she was charging betas all this money for webcam talks with her. I was like, what? The-? Like hundreds of dollars so these guys can get online and talk to her.
0: Yeah, so this, these, these women here, they want to exploit male sexuality and use and abuse men to extract... As much money from them as possible, and as much adoration, and uh, so that they can feel important that they have all these guys who are adoring them. But they want that money and that adoration without a price, right? They they don't want to be commodified, you know. They, they only want to be sexualized by that that one guy who means something to them. So there's a price you pay when you sell, sell your soul online, right? To to be a live streamer, you're selling your soul. To to be a, a writer, you're selling your soul. I talked about yesterday a great post on ten ten points about content creators. Right? To be a content creator who develops an audience, you have to have personality, useful information, and provide spectacle. So there's no way that you can develop any kind of following without selling your soul, without you know delving into some some painful and awkward parts of yourself or just, you know, just radically being open and sharing and uh, monetizing your soul. So everyone has to monetize their soul if they want to make a living as a writer or a live streamer. Then if you're a young woman and you want to monetize your beauty, okay, you're going to attract some kind of treatment from men. I don't think Meryl Streep has uh, suffered so much in that department because... She wasn't out there monetizing her body.
14: Her, you know, in person or whatever. But no, but this, you,
8: it's your, this, it's you right wing cat.
14: Like, speak for yourself. Like, were you actually this other girl, Ashton? Were you actually like sleeping with guys, or what was going no, on no, no. here? The, like-
8: there's a centralized organization, right? Kind of like Hollywood. It's kind of like that, you know what I mean? And then you have to go through a couple of people, and you have to, you know, give them BJ's, or you have to screw them. Basically, to to become known and ascending through the movement. So this is basically like um, like they're me tooing now. Like after years of like t- actually following along in this kind of method and system, now because it's a disadvantage to them, well, it's enough distance between them
0: so i dated this ex-porn star and the there were two incidents me two incidents that that led her out of the industry so i started dating her a month after she left the industry so there were two traumatic incidents for her. one she went to to a hotel room to audition for some porn director's movie and she was shocked and appalled that the guy tried to sleep with her and then on another occasion she went to a photographer to she was paid to do a photo shoot and he had her posing where she was naked and uh, she was on her stomach. And as he was taking photos, he suddenly dropped trowel and penetrated her, you know, came inside of her and uh, then went back to the photo shoot. So she did not appreciate this, but that was the industry that she chose to participate in. And a lot of people think, oh, I can have things on my terms. So I'm going to monetize my body. I'm going to monetize my beauty. I'm going to monetize simps. Now I'm going to monetize men, I'm going to exploit and extract as much attention and affection and resources from men as I can, without, you know, some rando spewing all over me. Well, it's not always easy to keep up those strong boundaries, right? You, you, when when you're making your living and getting most of your self-esteem from your ability to extract love attention and money from guys it's not always going to be so neat it's not always guys aren't always going to keep things perfectly within the boundaries that you wish so i remember i was i was dating a beautiful 40 year old woman and i asked her how much of her self-esteem did she get from her looks she said 100 and she was she was smart she was charming she had a tremendous sense of presence, so I never had to explain myself to her. I never had to explain when I was being sarcastic. She she was very present when I would speak. It was wonderful to be so heard by somebody. So she had many wonderful qualities, but still, when it came down to it, 100% of her self-esteem came from her looks. Uh,
8: and what they did back down So now, it's like,
0: oh, it's... Yeah, and so she was appalled. She's a uh, political activist, and she was appalled when some much older guy wanted to take her to dinner to talk about her ideas on left-wing political activism. And then midway through dinner, she realized that for, for the guy, this was a date. And so she was appalled that this old guy thought that he could go on a date with a beautiful woman like her, but it didn't occur to her. You know, how stupid was she thinking that this highly accomplished guy would take it to dinner because he was genuinely interested in her ideas. Right. So they both, Uh, They both had illusions. The guy had the illusion that this was a date. She had an illusion that the guy was interested in her ideas. It's all these bad things that happen. And, maybe and in the Merchant
14: happening. Maga rights. Maybe there. Maybe at uh, yeah. Ezra Levant's operation or something. Exactly, right. But uh But yeah. not at the Red Ices and the American <laughs> Renaissance's and the uh, countercurrents. I mean, Greg Johnson's gay, so that wouldn't even apply. would have it then. It's like, like, yeah. what no, the but, heck?
8: Uh, I mean, yeah. Uh, anyway, go on, because she yeah, well, says well, some well, things here. That yeah, I'm just like, I know, I know. It's just, oh my God, these people. Just, <laughs> just never... call it out. This is bullshit. Journalists is going to approach, there's going to be pieces written with these people. You know the whole thing here already right. mentions that yep, there you go
9: What i went through so many people come after me and call me crazy and say, you know maybe people can tell call-
0: this she may have had horrible things happen to her my my ex-girlfriend all right she went on a photo shoot she was just allowing you know a guy to image her naked she didn't sign up for the guy you know ejaculating inside of her right she didn't go there to have sex so uh lauren southern may well have been mistreated it doesn't mean that because she was monetizing her looks and taking advantage of manipulating men that she then deserved, you know, bad treatment. Very may well have been, you know, horrible, horrible, horrible things that were, that were done to her. It doesn't mean that she's lying. Whatever they want. Increase Whatever. Happened.
9: But you can't deny that there's something really sketchy going on and everything about Andrew Tate being
8: revealed. Oh, yeah. Okay, should we return to that? Okay,
9: Andrew Tate. Okay, oh, she... <laughs> let Lauren
14: say the human trafficking line okay. and then we'll pull up the andrew tate because right. i was like wait who is this guy i had to look him up again and oh that guy okay so the so basing more. all this sure. on this andrew tate all right.
9: it's
5: going to come out so i am just so really happy dude people are fucking human trafficking in the right wing people are complicit uh, in this shit thank you. there is so much going on thank behind you. the scenes that is sick and broken and if pe-
0: they are terrified of people why did you go along with it dumb <laughs> people like to bang right? men like to bang right and men with little power and resources often direct that power and those resources towards banging. Uh, people pursue things that give them pleasure and a feeling of importance. And there aren't exactly sterling moral standards in the dissident right, generally speaking. So yeah, what happens when you join a distant movement? What happens when you join a marginalized movement? You get marginalized people. What kind of people are marginalized people? They're people who normal, healthy people want nothing to do with. So you're choosing to hang out in a playground filled with people that normal, healthy people want nothing to do with. So, yeah, I would expect some sick stuff is going to go on.
5: <laughs> like me, who know about it, they're terrified of me speaking up. And the only reason I'm speaking be is because they me. have threatened my fucking family. So, oh, I'm like,
14: Okay, but... so you're supposedly all like Trad and all this in this period. You witness human trafficking, you're making documentaries, but then you don't call out the human trafficking that you supposedly saw. Uh, I call it bullshit. And by the way, this, this big evidence is Andrew Tate. You know, there's literal human trafficking in the right. Are you talking about, again, the merchant right or what? I had to look him up. Total Cheeseball. He's the half black, half English kickboxer guy. He was very MAGA. He hung out with people like Tommy Robinson, Cernovich, Jack Pusabayak. So maybe in those circles, something's going on. Uh, Spent time with all those people. <laughs> all Zionists. Also, Jordan Peterson's daughter was was yes, dating. This yes.
8: Do you remember this guy? She, there was a couple of photos way back floating around when she had, like, she had this. Uh, I think she, he was Russian born, uh, Alexei, or something Romania. like that. Romania. Or- This guy. Romania. Uh, Okay. Well, I don't think so. But anyway. Okay. They're in Romania when this photo is taken, allegedly. But I'm just saying she was married to like a white guy and she had a baby with him and then she divorced him and then she hooks up with, uh, with this guy, right? Uh, and there was some funny photos going around about that. So I guess this is what they're talking about. This, though, this is guy? not
14: dissident right. So this needs to be clarified. If you're traveling in MAGA merchant right circles, that is not the dissident right. Uh, this guy's also very rich. He's got like is more worth than more than sixteen million or something, which is not look very this, dissident right. Look at
8: the thumbnail that they're using for this video here too. <laughs> look at this. That's that same right there. Is that Lauren down there? Uh, let, me, let me scroll over here. Where are we here? Here we go. There we go. That's <gasps> the, that's the money shot right there. Is that Lauren right there? <laughs> there? That's the casting couch. That's a photo of the casting couch. Well, What's happening is
14: a woman is now claiming he held her at his house against her will. So there's a probe into crimes of human trafficking and rape now. Yeah. So because of this story, all the dissident right is human trafficking, and apparently he's the mentor of the dissident right.
8: Oh, okay. And apparently we're guy, all we're, but...
14: we're all complicit somehow.
8: Uh, yeah, with this uh, 450 lay count. Uh, and, and, and the question is lifestyle best country in Eastern Europe for beauties and lays? Is the question from uh, Elon Musk here, right? So it's all about that. This Gollum guy, so I've never heard of the guy, is like what they were, sleep- who they were sleeping with then? She said, meeting here? Because this guy has the casting couch. He was kidnapping these women, I guess. <sighs> what do you. If you- because maybe
14: lefty journals will start to. Now could benefit
8: me. Now yeah. could be another grift here. Oh, okay, that's why.
9: Um, um, yeah, I. I seriously, oh. I keep getting calls from like journalists and whatnot who want me to come forward with my yeah. story. Um, yep. Who I, I've I've been really private about certain names and whatnot. And the thing is, I have thought about going public with my story because I have gone to the police, I have made reports on what happened to me. Um, but the thing is, I think I'm also in a position where I'm afraid the public is just not going to react well to it because people are going to. How to explain this, Lauren? Where if you are in a position where you have no family. You only really have friends back home to rely on anymore. Your entire community is now this right-wing internet cesspool, and they are, have assaulted you. They've basically made you change what you wear, how to eat, basically wait, your wait, entire wait, identity. Wait,
8: who, is who exactly who is are you this? talking about like, here? Like,
14: who, who? Yeah, exactly. Drop some names here. Just give us some freaking names. Who is well, telling entertain. you what to? Yeah, Gollum. What to eat and what to wear and to lay on this casting this couch? Like a, what is uh, going
8: Hey, on do you want to? Hey, I've laid with four hundred and fifty women. Do you want to be four hundred and fifty one? Can I? Can I become someone in the right wing? Yeah, of course. You uh, just have to, uh, you know, suck my dick. <sighs> oh, then, uh, you know go.
14: she's going to talk to journalists, right? Okay, oh, like, yeah, looking course. for some redemption just, to get those uh, shitty friends back.
8: Then the headlines write themselves, right? The the far right's you know grooming issue. Yeah how they're uh, abusing... I mean, they've That's tried right. so hard for such a long time. I and mean, it wasn't kind of till until the the Groeper type mentality showed up that that really wasn't a, a wide scale insult thing, uh, like yeah. a wide scale problem you could argue right but that was more just they didn't want to have anything to do with girls it was kind of more like that right it wasn't like I mean b- b- did they bully but again, girls it's the, yeah. same, I mean, thing, maybe, I, the but... same
14: thing I said with the Me Too movie why did these girls always wait like sometimes 10-15 years later now in this case you know a few years later or whatever a couple years later if you saw some real stuff if you were actually assaulted if you were actually raped like speak up do something she said she went to the police well press charges like be loud about it then otherwise it's just the timing on it all is just very suspicious
9: -hmm. Washed over by these people who want you to be like sort of a cartoon character, and you know, it's gone to the point where one of them has assaulted you, you know, and you're in a position where you have nowhere else to go, you have nothing to do. So now I'm
0: finally in a place of like, okay, so what kind of person has nowhere else to go and nothing to do? Someone who's marginalized, all right, someone who is incredibly vulnerable, right? So, why were you in such a vulnerable position? What choices had you made, right? So It's not just a matter of condemning those who take advantage of the marginal. It's a matter of asking questions of those who have marginalized themselves. Are there better choices that you can make?
9: Like freedom. I would like to come forward. I I have been, you know, contacted by a lot of people recently to come forward, but it's just one of those things where one, I'm finally out of the situation, so I'm kind of free. But two, I feel obligated to talk about it. But at the same time, I don't think people would react well to it. It's it's, it's a really scary position. That I yeah, it's a tough spot.
0: Her. Right, because if she doesn't get applause and hugs, then that she doesn't want to tell the truth. She doesn't want to speak out to protect other people in case that uh, the general public who you know, reads this article doesn't react well. Right. So I, I don't have any obligations to others. I'm just keeping this to myself because I may not get applauded and I may not be seen as the virtuous victim here.
8: It matter if whoever reacts... Because all someone... she cares
14: about is what people think and being liked. Yeah, but what people They're... don't understand,
8: like someone calling you names on the internet, like that's that's not real, right? It's a, I mean... Well,
14: uh, issues and stuff, I remember that as well. Yeah. A long time ago she said
8: that, so yeah. obviously. Yeah. So anyway, so the point also why we're bringing this up is all right, that's fine.
5: And I, like I, I, My advice to people has always been go to the police. Like it's mm-hmm. hard to... Go to well, that's what I did. Have... I did go
9: to the police. There are reports on it. But the problem was is that a lot of people think of oh, like the right here's the i have this like idea that oh well if you know if i go to the police then you know everything's going to be solved because these people who claim they're hated by the government and that they're un- in danger from the government it's absolute bs because some of these people that you look up to your favorite pundits have a lot of money and a lot of power a lot more power than they not the dissident right then
14: mm-hmm. you can't no, possibly be no. talking about the dissident right
8: no
9: because uh, <laughs> money and power is not a
14: part
8: uh, of it yeah. the best way that's what i'm saying anyway let's uh,
9: and this. the police will just brush the case under the rug was,
0: yeah maybe you're not terribly compelling maybe you don't have credibility maybe it has something to do with you
8: the black hole of like um where all the little young kids who associate themselves with the right wing can like,
14: what's gonna happen yeah, you, you and i the, sit back
8: leadership that we literally are willing to take anything you know, yeah and
14: they're like oh they use these terms anyway yeah. moving on how about uh,
8: there's a couple oh, uh, one thing i do want to show though actually real quick is mm-hmm. so uh so here's uh, andrew tate article here it was not the best
0: Okay, so we've got an article here on counter-currents about Nick Fuentes and America First. America First has many bewildering problems, make little sense to an outsider. When America First began its descent during the original Groeper Wars of late 2019. It was composed not only of normal, but above average young men. It was understood that its policy objectives were trad with good optics. Since post-January 6, good optics have been abandoned with a descent into an obsession with being insoles. Voluntary celibates and lowbrow misogyny Fuentes and other America First streamers Spend hours holding Ad hoc ecumenical councils On the topic of inceldom If the celebration of being a loser wasn't sufficient To turn normal people away The convoluted reasoning certainly would The problems begin to make sense In light of the explanation that America First Consists of a fallen priesthood And their misguided followers So Nick Fuentes is the root of America First dysfunction I'm reading an article I don't have any developed thoughts on this He has developed a Richard Spencerian megalomania and narcissism. This is evident in many of his grandiose statements. Well, this is pretty common to live streamers, right? When you can gather any sort of audience for your opinions, it is incredibly gratifying, and you immediately start thinking that your opinions and that you are far more valuable than you really are. Again, with the occasional smug remark, proclaiming that he makes many miracles happen, and he escalated to obsessing over and comparing himself to Joseph Stalin, his recent ramblings while streaming have passed into complete delusion. Some highlights are, God created all of you guys to dig tunnels, or I am closer to the angels than I am to the people. He also said, you are a little piggy eating apple cores and banana peels in the trough and rolling around in the mud. Me, on the other hand, I'm sitting at the dinner table eating bacon. This wasn't directed at his enemies. This was directed at his followers. He sees his followers as expendable pay pigs. He has a holier-than-thou disdain for rural people and country living. Disparages them at length, calls them uncultured. He counter signaled cracker barrel. He derides people as wages, those who have to work. And uh, they shout F the troops, along with Beardson. So there's a lot of virtue signaling accompanied by widespread degeneracy. Beardson has talked about winning a meat and potatoes rape mod for Skyrim, his favorite PC game. And then there's uh, Vincent James, who the article accuses of all sorts of lies. Then the most uh, shocking revelations came in late April when good people were walking away from America first like a line of falling dominoes. It was as though everyone finally broke through the flimsy charade of gaslighting, endorsements, and initial impressions realized at once that Fuentes and his top hierophants are insincere and subversive. Know that uh, Fuentes is a... Band of the TV show *Euphoria*, which promotes degeneracy
4: and behaved badly, but that permission, unfortunately, is being extended. Right, definitely being extended.
3: I think it's, it's today the, uh, the, I call it the trendy left. Some people call it the woke left, the PC left, SJW left, whatever. It's all basically the same thing. There is uh, an expectation of being proud of an anti-traditional America, America. I think that the new order is patriotic toward a vision of the country, which has nothing to do with this traditional sort of Anglo-Celtic cultural core. It's this new post-American uh, America American state, which is, I call it the new world's version of the European Union, where you just have this economic zone that's held together by this massive bureaucracy, and it promotes all these political ideologies as a means of legitimizing state rule number one but number two sort of getting the people to have some sort of totally manufactured synthetic identity that revolves around hating the past and embracing a future where there's going to be a lower quality of life on average than was had in the past but it's going to be done in the name of diversity equity and inclusion so you know if you criticize that then you're a nazi so i think that's basically the left-wing vision or the trendy left vision of patriotism in modern america of
4: course i mean i i am you know that you were absolutely right that the patriotism i'm talking about is a certain you know traditional (laughs) uh type of establishment patriotism that's fundamentally admiring of the united states uh in its inception it's its core ideas and formulation it's it's demography it's composition it's style it's uh you know
0: okay that's uh amy wax there talking to joseph Carter and oh paul goffrey okay i've been reading the politics of expertise 2013 book by stephen turner Chapter four is on expertise and political responsibility, the Columbia shuttle catastrophe. So remember when the Columbia space shuttle exploded and then there were all these investigations and what did they find out? What was the upshot? What was the thesis of all these investigations? No one is to blame. It's like a Howard Jones song. No one ever is to blame. You can look at the menu but you just can't eat, you can feel the cushions but you can't have a seat, you can dip your t- foot in the pool but you can't have a swim, you can feel the punishment but you can't commit the sin. You want her and she wants you and no one no one no one ever is to blame. Okay, that was the <laughs> that was the result of all the investigations into the Columbia Space Shuttle catastrophe. So, in democracy, you've got a major conflict between the reality of expertise in public decision making and responsibility. So basic principles of democracy include political responsibility. So there is some sort of relationship between our rulers and the rule. Right? So we assume that the people who represent us are responsible to us. So the modern state has many devices apart from simple parliamentary representation, we have juries, commissions, independent judges, we have law lords, right? But uh, ultimately, who is responsible? So in 2003, the space shuttle blew up. What happened? So expert opinion, you'll notice in this example and many others, is usually not formulated in the first person. So Anthony Fauci isn't speaking in the first person. He speaks for science. Right? So individuals thought to be personally liable for opinions right? Experts don't want that. They don't want to be liable for their opinion. So expert knowledge is usually presented as impersonal, empirical knowledge. It's sure it's expressed and formulated by individuals. But it's they're just telling you how the world works. They're just telling you scientific truth. Now, political responsibility is personal and judged by collective processes. But expert knowledge is impersonal knowledge. And you can't really hold people responsible if they keep getting everything wrong. So for the public reacting to the Columbia space shuttle, holding individuals responsible was the essential aim, and their political representatives took this on as their political responsibility. But that didn't happen. So you got the development of the Columbia Accident Investigation Board. It was advised by technical experts, by top-line management theorists, by social studies of science scholars. And it came to conclusions that rejected that anyone was to blame. So the initial reaction of the NASA bureaucracy to this disaster, to to people pointing out that falling foam caused the disaster, which it did, how did NASA react to that was to attack the credibility of the foamologist All Right, NASA director Sean O'Keefe, had a science studies management background rather than a physicist he disparaged the foamologist he characterized the effect of the foam on the columbia as similar to the effect of a styrofoam container hitting the front of a pickup truck so calling adherence of the foam explanation which was correct foamologist implies that there was no form of technical expertise at its base so foamology is a erotic name for a non-existent technical discipline and These comments reflected what he was told by his senior technical managers. So he was relying on technical opinions that turned out to be grossly in error, and the foamologist turned out to be correct. Now, the magnitude of the error became apparent in the middle of the inquiry when an experiment was conducted by the Columbia Investigation Board simulating the kind of high-speed foam hits the orbiter had been subjected to. It was clear that the foam was more than sufficient to do the kind of damage that would have doomed the space shuttle. And it turned out that the foamologists were right. So who was running the Columbia mission? It was Linda Ham. So you had a woman running this, this commission. And so you don't want to put the blame on a woman, right? You don't want to blame some individual, right? That's not very expert so she was in charge of the mission she was mission manager and during the mission in response to informal requests by the debris team for satellite imagery of the bottom of the space shuttle columbia see if it's possible to identify holes or damages damage to the tiles that could have resulted from the foam strike so this request was made shortly after the launch after a frantic email discussion within the team about videotape of the launch where extensive foam shedding was observed now, how did Linda Hamm and uh, the management respond? They not only declined to entertain the request, which could very well have saved the lives of everyone aboard the Columbia, they declined to do so on procedural grounds. So you'll notice this is a very common management and expert approach. Oh, you're not going through the proper channels, right? The request had not come through the proper channels. It, it had come through email. So this is how Linda Hamm, mission manager, said, Well, we have read news reports that the mission management team had declined a request for outside assistance. And if you read through the transcripts, you'll note that the mission management team never addressed a request for outside assistance because it never came up in any of the meetings. It never came up to me personally. Now, she had intervened and she'd killed the request because the request had failed to come through proper channels. So it was not a bureaucratically genuine request or in the language of NASA, it was not a requirement. So Linda Ham said, I began to research who was asking these questions. What I wanted to do was to find out who that person was and exactly what they wanted to look at so that we could get the proper people from the operation team together with this people or a group of people to sit down and make sure that when we made the request, we really knew what we're trying to get out of it. So she is arguing explicitly against holding anyone responsible on the grounds that we operate and we communicate and everything we do, we do as a team. So women are wonderful because they're much more collaborative. I wonder if there are any downsides to that approach. So Linda Ham says, if the system fell down, we will fix the system. It's really difficult for me to attribute blame to individuals, right? She wanted to deflect responsibility. So she was the manager. She decided the problem was that the team could not, would not have done anything about what happened until after the mission anyway. So this was a collective decision. Right, but collective decisions are made through a process that was deeply flawed. So Linda Ham was motivated by managerial considerations that, in retrospect, seem trivial and inappropriate. He had these managerial considerations about the cost of getting the images, the inconvenience, the cost to other elements, the mission of maneuvering the operator into a position such that photo- photographs could be taken. He raised questions about the adequacy of the paperwork. <clears throat> wow. These are times like this that I need my recaller, sugar-free lemon honey. Delicious. So she raised questions about the adequacy of the paperwork and the rationale for dismissing foam events on previous flights. So there'd been such a large number of these foam events on previous flights and uh, no other space shuttle had exploded. Well, there were problems with the rings expanding with other space shuttles prior to the Challenger blowing up. So her motivation was to construct an adequate rationale, rationalizing for dismissing the event based on the precedent of previous rationales for dismissing it. All right? If she'd taken the possibility of damage seriously, she would have opened a full-scale inquiry while the flight was still going on. But her concern is with the paperwork doesn't really have an interest or willingness to actually do anything with the paperwork such as reading it or having it re-examined for its relevance so she has a bureaucratic approach to the problem of phone shedding it was inappropriate and callous her interest is to use bureaucratic authority to justify her own actions she hoped the paperwork was good but she had no interest in the questions raised in the emails despite the fact she had to be aware that the rationales against her point of view, were not particularly good. Would it be impossible to consider strategies to save the space shuttle? She could have uh, had the space shuttle stay in orbit and send up another shuttle to rescue them. But the top administrators at NASA were willing and eager to treat the the problems they were facing as not only acceptable but competent managerial actions. So no no one is to blame. So the head of NASA said that Linda Hamm was an excellent manager. Other divisions of NASA would be eagerly competing for her managerial services. So in a military context, she would have been court-martialed. In this context, she was simply shifted to another department. She, her career didn't suffer for her incompetence.
4: All of that ancestral stuff, that they have no use for that, but they do drape themselves in the mantle of patriotism. It's easy to co-opt that word. You know, it just takes no. So you're absolutely right. It's a different vision of patriotism. It's a it's a vision of the United States as fundamentally di- diversity is sort of at the core of it. Mm-hmm. That is the core ideology. They they just valorize and worship diversity mm-hmm. as if it's some kind of you know um, omnipotent god and never question it as a goal. Of course, diversity is is opposed. To-
0: and the chat asks, look, do you think that uh, having workspaces that say that uh, you shouldn't talk about politics? In, at work is itself a political statement. Sure, it's a political statement. So also a sane statement. Now, right, Generally speaking, you should not talk about hot-button explosive issues when there's a high possibility that it could lead to results that are bad for you. Right, it's just common sense. So generally speaking, best not to discuss high-pressure explosive issues at work, even socially, if there's a high likelihood that this is going to blow back on you or damage people around you, right? It's not all about you. If you damage morale, if you create unnecessary feuds and conflict around you, whether it's work or outside of work, you're a jerk. So don't bring up unnecessarily explosive issues. If it has the potential, high potential of hurting people, including yourself, and there's not much potential for doing good. I haven't found it very difficult to judge what type of people I can talk about sex, politics, religion, and other explosive issues with. So maybe once, twice a year, three times a year, I misjudge. And then I do a mea culpa. I try to reorganize my thoughts. Where did I go wrong? But at at age 55, I seem to find it fairly easy to recognize who I can talk about controversial issues with and who I cannot. Told to run for president, Luke replied, no. I need that time to read my books. Plus, there is crystal light and recaller that won't consume itself, mate. So you can look at it as a political or apolitical statement. It's uh, just common sense. The situational American president, Luke Ford, gives us this. In some situations, I will act as president. In others, I will act as a man. (laughs) Right, terrific. Stephen Turner book here from 2013. The politics of expertise. So, second line of defense opened up by Linda Ham pointed to reasons she would have been a def- she would this would have been a defensible action purely on the grounds of the NASA model of handling expert opinion. So, she did the best she could given the information she had. She talked to the people she trusted. She listened to that analysis. Now, this is a peculiarly ambiguous formulation, but an interesting one. So, she chose to listen to certain technical advice and to avoid other technical advice that would have been troubling or disruptive. So, Linda Hamm was caught in the following paradox of authority. She was not herself an expert on the issue in question, so she was compelled to rely on expert judgment. But because she was not an expert, she could not independently determine who was genuinely expert. So, this is a paradox of managerial omniscience. If the manager is sufficiently omniscient to determine who is expert, she'll be virtually as expert as the expert herself. This would be the limiting case. So the closer one approaches to the limiting case, less there's any need for expertise, counsel, or expert advice in the first place. Linda Hamm instead relied on the system. She relied on senior technical advisors who screened and evaluated technical advice, and comments from engineering teams, non-data-driven presentations at meetings in which quite large numbers of managers and engineers representing different teams, participated. So to the best of my knowledge, no one really got punished or suffered opprobrium or any inconvenience for the space shuttle Columbia explosion. So Linda Hamm was accused of creating an atmosphere in which engineers were intimidated and afraid to speak out. She relied on her relevant technical advisors and said, oh, you have a formal responsibility to raise concerns. It was so zeal to hold them responsible for raising questions that chilled the atmosphere and prevented discussion. So the engineers who invented the scenario that correctly predicted the course of events once the space shuttle was damaged made a great point to the newspapers that their predictions were only speculative. So they absolved themselves from responsibility for not pushing their arguments harder, which was their clear formal responsibility on the solid grounds that their scenario was only speculative. Right, Not a technical opinion in the engineering sense, ground on known principles and data. So one key figure, Bob Dowdy, did the damage assessment that indicated what would happen to the shuttle's left tires if extra heat got inside the landing gear department because the tires were damaged. He sent a series of emails about this. He indicated his frustration, the lack of response. But he later insisted his messages have been grossly misinterpreted, but neither warnings nor concerns. They were just engineers talking. Just engineers talking. So this distinction between just talking and something else is interesting, but something else would have to be taking managerial responsibility. The team structure of NASA's consensus system for employing expert opinion requires engineers to take this dual role, to the police themselves with respect to the expression of their opinions, has the effect of requiring them to distinguish between off-stage technical speculation, opinions to which they are accountable as managers members of a management team. It's part of this system that failed because a whole series of engineers who expressed doubts in the course of just talking failed to take the next step of invoking formal procedures would have made those doubts into managerial actions. So in engineering, the tradition is to draw a distinction between that which can be fully and predictably calculated according to known formulas, and which results in predictable outcomes and that which cannot, and what happened with Space Shuttle Columbia is not something that could be fully and predictably calculated according to known formulas. So NASA discourse operated on a principle of accepting only data-based claims. Simultaneously, it was reluctant to spend the money and the effort required to collect the relevant data when things empirically were working just fine. So... Atomic scientists in the West during the two decades after the nuclear bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, they believed, because they were technical experts about nuclear weapons, that they were uniquely and solely qualified to make judgments about nuclear disarmament, about which weapons programs should be pursued, and about nuclear strategy. Eventually, however, a vast array of other experts staked more convincing claims to expertise on these topics. So... Atomic scientists sought managerial power and responsibility and then complained about the inability of the decision-makers to understand them or to respect their claims to special expertise. So This is utopianism. It conflates the distinctions between technical knowledge, meta-expertise, the ability to assess the claims of experts in decision-making. It implies that experts should simply be delegated managerial authority in those domains about which they are expert, and that their own claims about the significance and relevance of their expertise should be accepted, even where the political consequences about which they are not expert are enormously significant. So in the course of the Columbia inquiry, Linda Hamm was asked, as a manager, how do you seek out dissenting opinion? Linda Ham answered, well, when I hear about them, interrupted Linda, by their nature, you may not hear about them. Well, when somebody comes forward and tells me about them, Linda techniques used to get them. She had no answer. Linda Hamm chose not to blame others. She appealed to the idea that because the mission workers were a team, nobody should be held responsible. So what happened to the core to hold NASA officials responsible? First answer is given by the Columbia accident investigation team, which blamed NASA culture. Second is the response of NASA employees and former employees, which was mixed. Number of different persons identified as culpable. Strongest reaction was that Han was a scapegoat. Third reaction is the response of the politicians, who eventually gave up on the question of responsibility. And the fourth answer is that of NASA management, who professed acceptance of the conclusion of the accident report, but did in fact the opposite. So the newest understanding of the cause of the foam shedding in the foam itself suggests that this particular foam shedding event was significantly outside of any past experience. All right, that's from Stephen Turner's excellent 2013 book, The Politics of Expertise. To
4: familiarity, to sameness, to stability, to uh, kind of natural cohesion and natural mm-hmm. affinities, um, and you know w- what many people prefer, but now they can't speak up and endorse that preference. They can walk with their feet. I mean, white flight is alive and well, white flight is rampant. Uh, in this country and no one's allowed to talk about it. The people who lecture me most sanctimoniously about diversity in my horrible politics are people who summer in places like, you know, Stockbridge, Massachusetts, (laughs) you know, Western Connecticut and these cutesy little New England towns in Vermont where everybody everybody is white. There are a few immigrants who come and do the dirty work, right, but just, they're not diverse at all. We have a country where elites lecture you about diversity from the most undiverse places they can find. uh and that's that's really quite exasperating, let me tell you uh mm-hmm. to preach that and not practice it, but yeah, diversity, there's kind of international davoisie outlook that's borderless that's very suspicious of nationalism of borders of you know traditional national boundaries and countries and identities. they hate Hungary, that's their whipping boy uh Poland, all those backward places <laughs> they're very ambivalent about well, they're a little bit hands off because it's so much fun to go there, and it's a favorite watering hole of, like France. Mm-hmm. France gets a, a weird kind of arm's length treatment, mm-hmm. uh, especially in a place like the New York Times. I mean, they're just all over the map, of you know, just totally coherence mm-hmm. comes to France. Except they know they hate Le Pen, they hate Zemmour, right? And when uh, Macron talks about Lascyte and you know French culture and everything, they just kind of look the other way
2: mm-hmm.
4: uh, because, of course, they love to go to France and enjoy all of those things. Um, and if they all disappeared, which is rapidly occurring in some places, um, they'd probably be sad. Uh, but
0: it wouldn't say so. So
3: anyway. And there is something uh from the office.
0: And uh that's gonna do it. Bye bye.